Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast is Dr. Beth Kreitzer. She is the director of a program in liberal studies at Belmont Abbey College in Belmont, North Carolina. She is also the editor, the volume editor of the most recently published volume in the Reformation Commentary on Scripture, which is on the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to talk about her work and this commentary today. So welcome, Beth, to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you very much. Now, let's just begin, uh, I ask you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your own background and uh, kind of what led you into this work. Okay, well, um, I am a Reformation historian. My primary area of study is Luther and the Lutheran Reformation, and I've been doing that since, it seems like a long time now. Um, I was I was raised a Lutheran, and that's certainly always been an interest of mine, and in college I focused in on that, and obviously in graduate school went to Duke and studied with David Steinmetz, who is a Reformation historian, and um, worked on Luther and the Lutheran Reformation in reference to the Virgin Mary in, in graduate school, and then that, that I published that as my first book, and so I've been researching along those lines um, ever since. Now, it so happens, in a previous life, David Steinmetz was one of my teachers. Uh, actually, he was a visiting professor at Harvard when I was finishing my doctoral work there and ended up um, being on my doctoral committee, so I know David from a long time ago. Uh, for those who may not know David Steinmetz, tell us a little bit about who he is and what it was like working with David Steinmetz at Duke University. Sure. Well, David is, I would, and, and he would probably demur on this because he's a rather modest fellow, but he's, I would say, one of the foremost living scholars, at least on the Reformation today in the United States. And of course, they have a great connection with folks in Europe as well. So people around the world are, are familiar with David. He's a kind of an elder statesman, I guess, at this point. Um, he is well-known particularly for studying the history of scriptural exegesis, or that is, the interpretation of scripture throughout history. So that's probably his niche in particular, I would say. He's an interesting person. I mean, he was a very good um, mentor for me and for many of us who who studied with him Um He's actually kind of a scary person in many ways. <laughs> as, a, as a graduate student, he's a little terrifying, but then you get to know him, and he's actually really supportive. He just doesn't hold your hand through the process, but that's probably that's probably a good thing. As a graduate student, you kind of have to learn to stand on your own two feet anyway, but he was very good in that way. You know, he has a special relationship to this uh, commentary series we're going to discuss. Uh, he's one of our uh, primary advisors on the editorial board advisory uh, group. Uh, but I remember him also as one of the very best classroom teachers I ever had. A wonderful lecturer, could make the Reformation come alive. Absolutely. In fact, sometimes I think 
um, you know, say stories pop into my head or, or um, pieces of information that I tell my class. And I think, where did I learn that? I must have read that in a book or I can't remember. And then I'll think about it. Oh, no, it was in one of Steinhardt's <laughs> church history lectures. <laughs> so I'm repeating the same stories. And in fact, all of his students do the same thing. We come, we meet up every once in a while and we'll say, oh, yeah, I still use the story about the train. Oh, yeah, I still use it. <laughs> yeah. So he lives on in, in our work as well. Now, you mentioned earlier that you had been brought up as a Lutheran. You are now a Catholic Christian, I think. That's correct. So so talk about what it's like for a Catholic historian to work on the Protestant Reformation. Well, um, you know, it's hard for me to say how that would feel if I had always been Catholic. I suspect that would be a little bit different for me. Um, but since I was raised a Lutheran, and in fact, I only became Catholic about six years ago when we moved here to Belmont, for me, it's it's a very organic process. And in fact, I would not have felt comfortable becoming a Catholic if I didn't feel that it meshed with both, obviously, my own beliefs as a Christian, but also kind of how I understand the world and how I understand the history of Christianity through the lens of the Reformation. So for me, it's it's actually both personal and professional in terms of that was part of my decision to become Catholic. But I personally don't find that there's any conflict there. If anything, I would say that Catholics and Catholic institutions still need to be reminded of, and in fact, I think Pope Francis is pretty good at this too, um, still, you know, still need to be reminded of areas that may need work or may need continuing reform. So I don't think that's a bad thing at all. So there's a lot of ecumenical promise and possibility in looking at the Reformation, not so much in a partisan way, but as a period in which all Christians have some kind of investment. I think that's true. I think we all have a stake in it, and I think it's important not to forget about or ignore the past and certainly the differences that came up in the past in the process of having conversations today. Now, you've edited this volume on the Gospel of Luke. It just has been published very recently by InterVarsity Press as a part of the Reformation Commentary on Scripture. So uh, tell us how you approached this subject. How did you choose? Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the process itself, because some people may not be familiar with the RCS. It's a, it's an anthology of comments, exegetical comments right. from the 16th century. So how did you go about uh, working on this? I think, actually, I had a slightly different approach than a lot of the other folks who are working on other volumes, because, of course, as you know, there are different volumes on the different books of Scripture, and, and mine is, is on the Gospel of Luke, but the other Gospels and, you know, the, all the Old Testament books are also uh, covered in volumes as well, or will be when they all are finished. My own approach to this arose out of the the research and the sources that I was familiar with when it came to studying the Reformation, and that was largely through looking at sermons. And that's what that's the material that I used for my dissertation, which became my book on the Virgin Mary. And I focused in on sermons in in that whole you know series of, of researches. And so I continued with that when I approached the Gospel of Luke. And, and fortunately, I think it turns out that, and, and maybe I'm biased here, but I, I mean, I do think that was probably the better way to go yeah. 
too, in terms of, of looking at the material. Some of that has to do with the fact that there are not a lot of commentaries out there just on the Gospel of Luke or in which the Gospel of Luke can be easily abstracted from everything else. Now, one reason, tell us about that. It's interesting that there are not so many commentaries on just Luke in the Reformation era. Uh, Why is that? Well, in fact, you do start to see more and more as the time period goes on. I mean, one of the things that I found particularly fascinating about this project, about the RCS project, is that we actually use 16th and 17th century texts. And for me, that was an expansion because I didn't usually go past the 16th century. If anything, I usually would read prior to it. So this was, for me, an opportunity to move a little bit further on in history. And you see more and more as time progresses, and they become more academic as well. One reason, perhaps, is because so many, of, especially the early reform, I'm thinking of Calvin, wrote a harmony on the Gospels. Right. And and so that would be more of a kind of bringing together the three, certainly the synoptic Gospels. Absolutely. And you find that, and then the other tendency that I found in the material that I read is that a lot of folks focused in on the Gospel of Matthew and considered that to be the primary text and then only addressed Luke in the areas where it differed from Matthew. And since they share a lot of material, you know, that, that they could work that way. I like the fact that you identify right up front some of the major themes in the Gospel of Luke, and your comments uh, revolve around these themes as you look at them in different ways, though you do pursue kind of from chapter 1 right through the end of the Gospel uh, in that kind of way. But let's talk about some of those themes. Uh, one of the major themes in Luke is its focus on women. It's been called right. the, the woman's gospel. In fact, mm-hmm. and uh, talk a little bit about the the feminine perspective of Luke, and in particular, I want to ask you about two female commentators that you bring out, Katharina Schutzel and uh, Katharina von Greifenberg. Who were they? Absolutely, I think there's actually two different things going on, and that one is the the question of of women authors in the Reformation era, and Katharina uh, Schutzel and Katharina von Greifenberg would be two of the few women who published in that time period, and so, uh, you know, whose writings we really have access to. Um, And then the gospel itself being more focused on women, I think, than a lot of the other biblical texts is, is really a separate point. But one of the things that I found particularly interesting when I was reading these few female authors was the extent to which they seemed to notice more the aspects of the gospel stories that had to do with women than the male authors did. I mean, I do think there was really more of a consciousness of that than you found among the male authors. If anything, the the male authors from this time period, from the 16th and 17th centuries, may have de-emphasized the the role of women in the gospel Mm -hmm. of Luke as opposed to, you know, a lot of folks who study the gospel today, scripture scholars, will definitely point out, oh, wow, there's a lot of women in Luke, and you see they have very important parts in the story, and, and, you know, Jesus has friends who are women, and so on. But the 16th and 17th century commentators are less likely to point out the women and their importance in that text 
than than modern uh, scripture scholars do. Give us a little thumbnail biography of these two uh, really remarkable women. Katharina Schutzel was a 16th century figure. Right. Katharina von mm-hmm. Greifenberg, a 17th century figure. To say a little right. bit about who they were, their context. Sure. Well, Katharina Schell is a um, is actually considered to be a reformer in her own right, and she was also married to probably the first in terms of foremost reformers of the city of Strasbourg, which was a an early um, city of reform in the Holy Roman Empire. And she married uh, Matthias Zell, who was one of the main ministers there, in 1523. So she was actually a very early person to marry a priest and, you know, sort of begin the tradition of clerical marriage. And wrote a defense of it, as I remember, as well. Against um, She wrote a defense of her husband, which I think included a big portion on the fact that they got married. Yeah, exactly. And she is someone who is, you know, she's fairly well known in terms of people who, who look at the Reformation who are interested in that era, because she did publish uh, several, I think, six or seven uh, of her own writings, and in fact, they're now available in a modern critical edition along with a biography of her. So uh, people who want to you know, know more about her and want to read what she wrote, it's actually fairly easily available. Elsie McKee edited those volumes. Now, Katharina von Greifenberg, on the other hand, I think is not really well known at all. She's more known among literary scholars as a poet. So she is not really known so much as a writer on religious subjects, or at least, you know, it's connected to the Reformation. But but in the context of this particular work, I was able to use, you know, quite a few of the, the comments that, that she uh, wrote because they worked along the lines of, you know, the anthology here. But she's an interesting figure. She was a, a Lutheran from a Protestant family uh, who was uh, born in Austria, but in fact experienced religious persecution at various points in her life during the Thirty Years' War and also from kind of counter-Reformation events where she was uh, living and so ended up having to be, uh, you know, to leave her home and live in uh, Nuremberg several times in her life, but she wrote a a really fascinating meditation or a series of meditations on the incarnation, birth, uh, and then the suffering and death of Jesus. And it's very mystical and very Baroque and very emotional in many ways, but it kind of uh, represents that era of literature. And it's quite different from what you read in the 16th century. So I think it's interesting in that way as well, that we have a shift now in kind of a literary approach that becomes very clear in, in her writing. Yeah, I loved reading the, the selections, the excerpts that you gave from Katharina von Greifenberg, and they're very vivid. They, they make the oh, text, yes. they illuminate the text yes. in a special way. So, And she is the one in particular, I think, who focuses in on the women in the story. She just had a, a real high consciousness of the women, the women's roles, uh, how the women might have felt, um, particularly at, you know, at Jesus' death. And I always find it kind of amusing how she's the one who comments on the fact that it's the women who stay and the men who run away. And so there, so she really sees that the women, whatever 
you know, how, whatever experiences they may have had in feeling like they weren't as important or, or you know, not as um, much in leadership roles, they were still very, very dedicated, and she points that out. Another great theme in Luke, and you bring this out as well in, in your uh, commentary, Jesus' mercy, compassion, he was concerned for women, but also for children. Children play a big role in Luke. The unclean, right. those we call lepers, uh, show up in Luke often. The outcast, the downtrodden, the poor, the hungry. Um, say a little bit about that theme as it's woven into the texture of your commentary. Well, I think that that is, is true both in, you know, the actual gospel text, but certainly in the comments about it. That, that we read from uh, folks in the 16th and 17th centuries, that it allowed them an opportunity to really discuss some of the issues that were, of course, also important at their own time. I mean, issues of how do we, how do we deal with the poor? How do we deal with the homeless? What should be our Christian approach to charity? For example, how do we deal with things like um, like violence, or or do we do we just say no? We have to only be peaceful, or can we make war, or you know those kinds of questions that are I suppose they're significant in any age, but they obviously had a particular resonance with with folks in in that time as well. And so um, the themes in Luke along those lines uh, allowed them to address some issues, and maybe even address them in a way that today we would say, for Pete's sakes, guys, you forgot to even talk about, you know, whatever it might be. You know, we have our own particular focus now, and it's not the same. It's not the same, but but they addressed the themes in the gospel along the lines of the questions and the issues that they were dealing with at the time, um, including some of those ones. In fact, one of the things that I particularly noticed when I was going through this is that a lot of the debate that comes up in Luke over these, what we might call social issues, um, is really between um, Protestants who remained, oh, you know, what we would call magisterial or perhaps um, more along the main line kind of Protestants, and then the ones who were more, uh, and the term that we usually use is radical, and we don't mean radical like crazy, but we mean radical in the sense of um, attempting to go back to the very roots of of what's in the Gospels, particularly to live out the Gospel story. And there were there are a number of debates among Protestants at the time, and those really some of those really come out quite strongly in uh, in commentary on the Gospel of Luke. I notice in, in your commentary there are the, the radicals, we call them, people like Caspar von Schwinkfeld, who was a spiritualist mm-hmm. reformer, right. and, and the Anabaptists that show up uh, from Absolutely. time to time. What is the importance of reading people like this that are kind of on the margins, we like to think in some ways, out of the mainstream, and yet they have a voice to add, don't they? And you bring that out. Well, I think there's a couple of reasons why. I mean, only one of which would be that their spiritual heirs are still among us now. I mean, we have their Anabaptist churches, there are Mennonites in, in many parts of the country. I mean, there, there are folks certainly who are heirs of those 16th century figures. Um, but even beyond that uh, part of the matter, I would say that, you know, one of the things that the, the radicals or the, the folks who were on the more fringes of the debates have to show us is that 
there is, and there was at the time, such a large variety of opinion. And there were, in fact, many ways that, that people could and did go with even just reading the Bible, for example. And I would say that was something that surprised the heck out of Luther Mm. um, when in the 1520s he started realizing, uh, wait a minute, not everybody agrees with me. I don't quite understand why that is. Hmm. Oh, yes, and that, of course, really didn't sit very well with him. but, um, But there were plenty of folks who he just assumed, at least for a while, that once he opened their eyes to the truths that were in Scripture, that everybody would just sort of fall in behind him and say, oh, you're right, and wow, let's go down this road. But it didn't work that way. And I think that really teaches us something about the interpretation of the Bible, certainly, that you know there is not always just going to be one way that it's going to happen. You know, we've been talking about some of the controversies in the Reformation uh, between the Reformers and the Radical Reformers, but but also, of course, there was the, the big divide between the, the Catholic Church and those who became known as Protestants. That wasn't originally uh, their, their first de- designation, but also am- among the Protestants. I mean, Luther and Zwingli on the Lord's Supper. And this, you bring this out in the commentary because, of course, you're dealing with these Eucharistic texts and other uh, very important passages that were in debate uh, in the Reformation among the magisterial of Protestant reformers as well as between Protestants and Catholics. So, oh, right, absolutely. And in fact, um, I think that even the differences that remain today between many of these churches really go back to those very debates in the 16th century, and in particular the debates over the sacraments, and mm. you know, especially the Eucharist, but the sacraments in general. And it's funny because you... I, well, I've had students, for example, here at the Abbey who have written on sacraments. And I had a student in particular a couple of years ago who wrote a paper, a thesis on baptism. And he kept talking about, you know, baptism and here's what it says in the Bible. And, um, you know, so this is what Jesus meant. And here's what we teach about it today. And here's what Baptists think about it today, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I finally asked him, I said, you know, um, I think you need to explain what you mean by a sacrament first before you can explain how you understand baptism, because I have a feeling that what you're talking about is a very, very different approach than, let's say, the Catholic perspective on sacrament. And it is. It was entirely different, but he hadn't really gone all the way down that path. And I think a lot of those differences really come right back to these very texts, some of which are in this commentary that they show, okay, here is where they started to diverge Mm. on these matters. So this volume that you've edited on the Gospel of Luke in the Reformation period takes us back to some of the sources of the divisions that we still live with and seek to overcome, uh, but yet haven't quite reached that level yet of unity. We seek it as Jesus prayed that his uh, disciples would be one as he and the Father are one. It's a prayer that we continue to pray even today. So I wonder, uh, we're hoping uh, this whole commentary series, the Reformation commentary series itself uh, on Scripture, will be useful to pastors and to teachers who are charged with the responsibility uh, week by week of teaching, proclaiming uh, the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God. So why is it important, in your view, helpful? Why is it helpful to read Luke with the Reformers? 
Well, I mean, on a very simple level, I would say, because that is one era of the history of the Church, and anyone who wants to understand where we stand today and where maybe some of their own beliefs may come from really needs to understand where we've been in the past. Now, I'm a historian, so for me that seems so obvious to say that, but but I do think that is at least on one level um, a good enough reason uh, alone to to read it with those in the past. But I mean, I think there, there are deeper reasons as well. And I do agree with, well, people like Dr. Steinmetz, for example, who talk about the fact that post-enlightenment and kind of the the scriptural, the critical thinking of scripture and, and kind of the, the rediscovery of the biblical text does not preclude the fact that people read and discussed and argued about and wrote about and understood and interpreted the Bible for a long, long, long period of time in between when the texts were first collected and let's say the the late 18th century when you know people started saying, hey, wait a minute, let's take an academic approach or however you might characterize that event. And what they thought and read about and understood and prayed and believed and so on is not all of a sudden now unimportant simply because we can also attempt to go back to and understand the original intentions of the text and within the original context. That's not the only thing that's important to know and understand about the Bible. The importance of reading along with the uh, the early church uh, teachers, the medievals, uh, the, the scholastic leaders of the Middle Ages, and certainly the reformers of these various traditions and stripes we've been talking about is all a part of engaging uh, the Holy Scriptures as they have come to us in the life of the church from the very beginning right into the present today. In other words, it's not enough just simply to read the text of the New Testament or the Gospel of Luke on the one hand and the most recent critical commentary on the other. It's good to read both of those, but alongside that we read along with those who have come before us. And And, and personally, I... You know, and of course, I read all this stuff because I translated and I put it down and decided what to put in the book. But I actually learned, I think, some really important insight myself, personally, about various elements of the text from reading these different folks who were, you know, maybe not even particularly famous or who may not be read today, but may have had a really good insight on some aspect of the gospel story that I wouldn't have done otherwise. So, I mean, I've found it personally rewarding to read a lot of the, the material that's now collected in this volume. I'd like to close our discussion today, uh, Beth, by just reading the last few sentences from your introduction, which is oh, a, it's sure. a wonderful introduction. And then any final mm-hmm. comments you want to add, but I love the way you summed up what this gospel was, a, was about. Uh, You say that this gospel was written according to the stated intention of the author to convey the truth about Jesus, to convey God's word through words, to confirm and deepen the faith of its readers. The gospel of Luke may also do many other things. The stated intention of an author is never the only factor in the text interpretation. It may not even be the author's only intention. But we should remember that it is first and foremost the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings for us. What did you mean by that? 
Can you say it any better than that? <laughs> Probably not. I mean, I might have been thinking somewhat too about Luther's emphasis on on all of the the importance of the gospel being for us. I mean, I this is generally how I think about it when I think about that particular question. Um, is that Luther said, you know, a lot of people believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Even even the devil believed that Jesus was the Son of God. But what the devil did not believe is that Jesus, as the Son of God, came and sacrificed and died for him. So for Luther, it was that for me or for us part that should never be forgotten when you think about what is really that good news that's there in the Bible. And in fact, one of the things that I'd mentioned in the paragraph prior to what you read was the whole question about whether this is true or whether this is historical. And a lot of people are, in fact, very concerned about, can we confirm the historical accuracy or historical truth of any of these events? And, you know, scholars look at that and worry about that sort of thing, which is fine. I mean, it's not, it's not an irrelevant question, but it's also not the most important mm. question either. Because what's, what is the most important question is to say, okay, do I believe that these words and that this message and that this good news is in fact for me? Yeah. And that's, I think, what the point of the, the, whole, the whole Bible is really about, or it's certainly the whole faith of, of Christianity is about that. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Beth Kreitzer. She is the director of the program in liberal studies at Belmont Abbey College in Belmont, North Carolina. She is also the volume editor of the Reformation Commentary on Scripture volume on the Gospel of Luke. Thank you so much, Dr. Kreitzer, for this wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.